Luke 23, beginning in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, that is Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Last words fascinate a lot of people. Sometimes last words are very poignant. Sometimes they're filled with meaning. Sometimes last words, frankly, I'm not saying this to be funny. It's just true. Sometimes they are confusing But sometimes even those confusing words still mean a lot to those who hear them because they are just simply hearing someone's voice for what ends up being the final time. And it continues to amaze me how even sometimes even words that are basically meaningless can mean so much to those who are grieving simply because they're hearing a voice. But last words mean a lot. On the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, That would be July 4th, 1826. Two of our nation's founding fathers passed away on the same day. At the age of 90, former President John Adams knew that his moments were short. And no one knows why his final words were these. But as his breath was leaving him, that former ambassador, former vice president and former president uttered the words, Thomas Jefferson still lives. But if you have studied American history, you know the irony of those words. Because of communication those days before telephones and 24-hour news cycles, there was no way for John Adams to know the truth, and that is that Thomas Jefferson had actually died just five hours prior. But still, those words are remembered for their irony, but also simply because they are the final words of one who was one of our founding fathers. And such a very important figure in the early parts of our nation's history. There is no way that we could spend too much time at the cross of Jesus Christ. There is simply no way that we could we could have too many lessons or spend too much of our devotional time or too much of our Bible reading time around the events that are so prevalent at Calvary. And so for the next few weeks, as we begin another Sunday night series, we're going to be considering What were the final words of Jesus on the cross? Of course, Jesus spoke again, thankfully, because up from the grave he arose. But it is remarkable to think about the words that Jesus spoke in his last few hours as he was hanging on the cross. Seven times Jesus spoke from the cross words that are preserved for us in the New Testament. As with everything Jesus said, everything is important. They're filled with meaning. But there is an added weight or an added poignancy, if you will, to these words simply because they were those final words that Jesus said as he was breathing for the last few times upon the cross. And if we didn't know Jesus as well as we do, it would be absolutely stunning to us 
maybe even shocking to us, considering what he had gone through and what he was going through at the moment that the first words he spoke were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, verse 34. And by the way, in preparing these lessons, Tyler and I have tried to place these statements in chronological order, in the order Jesus spoke them from the cross. Chronologically, it seems, these are the first words, at least that are recorded for us, that Jesus spoke. I want to read a paragraph to you, and I'll admit the language is a little bit outdated. But, but a writer named Arthur Pink tries to give us an idea of what this scene looked like. And the amazement we should have that these are the first words Jesus said. He wrote these words. The fell deed had been done. No ordinary death would suffice his foes. A death of intense suffering and shame was decided upon. A cross had been secured. The Savior had been nailed to it. And there he hangs, silent. But presently his lips are seen to move. His dried lips. Is he crying for pity? No. What then? Is he pronouncing bad words upon his crucifiers? No. He is praying. He is praying for his enemies. That one sentence from Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, teach us so much about Jesus Christ, his character. But they're also instructive to us. And tonight what I wanted to do as we begin these lessons on the sayings of Jesus is simply look at three things that are true about what Jesus said in that statement, but also make an application from each one for our lives. First of all, consider with me this fact that Jesus began in prayer. You know, the, the life of Jesus was covered. Some writers like to use the phrase, it was bathed in prayer. I really like that picture. If we were to sit here tonight and try to make a list of every time Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us either that Jesus prayed or record for us the words that Jesus prayed, we would be here for a long time. It is remarkable how often Jesus prayed and how many times we are told that he prayed, how many different circumstances in which he prayed. But so it doesn't necessarily surprise us that Jesus would pray on the cross as he as he is in agony. But the simple fact that his first words on the cross, at least as we have them recorded, are a prayer should tell us and teach us so much. It reminds us that prayer was Jesus first reaction to anything, whether good or bad. He wanted to be in constant communication with his father. And he desired that no matter what the circumstances were. I think there's a lesson in that for us about prayer being so natural to us that it is not our last resort. It is our only resort. In fact, it is our first resort for sure. No matter our circumstances, the first natural reaction we should have should be to communicate whatever is going on in our hearts and lives with our father who is in heaven. Whether things are good or whether things are negative. But I think there's also something very significant about what Christ prayed in these moments. We'll talk more in a couple of minutes about the forgiving heart that you so obviously see. But think with me about the circumstances surrounding this particular prayer. Of course, as we so often sing, Jesus could have called 10,000 angels and ended this entire thing. In fact, Scripture tells us he could have called a whole lot more than that. He could have called upon the entirety of all the angels if he so chose. But he knew that going through with his plan on the cross was what was necessary. 
to accomplish what the Lord sent him to do. And so he had to endure excruciating, absolute agony for those hours on the cross. One writer, and I'm summarizing here, was talking in, in something I was reading this, uh, these last few weeks, getting ready for this lesson, that touched me deeply. In that he said, if you think about it, the hands that had healed countless and comforted countless more were now, from human perspective, completely incapacitated. And the feet that had walked scores of miles to tell people about the Father in heaven and about the plan that was now coming to fruition, again from human view, the human viewpoint, were incapacitated. It seemed, humanly speaking, that Jesus was unable to minister because those ministering hands and those ministering feet could no longer move. But Jesus was not through ministering to other people. And nothing could keep him from ministering through prayer. No matter his physical limitations, Jesus would not stop praying for others, even when they were the ones doing wrong to him. I think there's something there for many of us. Some of you specifically, maybe who have some physical difficulties. For some, just being able to come to worship is a triumph of a physical nature. And some would come more often, but there's so much pain, so much hurt, so much difficulty Maybe you, you used to visit a lot of people or be involved in a lot of works and ministries here at the church. We don't call them ministry works, but those days are dwindling. Maybe those days are basically gone. But folks, as long as you have breath in your body, you need to pray, obviously. But you also need to believe that prayer is a ministry. That prayer really is service. That prayer really does change things. People who cannot, quote unquote, do anything can do that, folks. The old statement, I just can't do anything anymore, simply is not true. Because so long as you have breath in your body, you can pray for those who need prayer. Our elders need prayer. Our ministers need prayer. Tyler needs prayer as he works with our young people. Our Bible school teachers need prayer. Every member who visits, who sends cards, who encourages others to attend, who reaches out of benevolence, who holds Bible studies, and on and on and on it goes, needs someone behind them praying for them. Jesus began in prayer because he understood that prayer in and of itself is a ministry, a necessary ministry. Number two, consider with me that Jesus was always ready to forgive because the Father is always ready to forgive. To ask for forgiveness of others is difficult. But there is no way for me to overstate the case of looking at the circumstances in which Jesus said this prayer. He was asking for the forgiveness of those who put him through the darkest hour in human history. But it's intriguing to me what Jesus prayed for. Obviously, he said, forgive them. But he said, forgive them for they don't know what they do. They know not what they do. That's really kind of remarkable. If you stop and consider the ones he was praying for. Because many of the ones standing there at the foot of the cross, or at least in the vicinity of the cross, had seen so much more. They had seen Jesus heal. They had heard a lot of his teachings. Many of them standing there had probably been beneficiaries of some of the miracles. Maybe one of the feedings or even possibly one of the healings. But they simply could not fully grasp that he really was that one that all the Old Testament prophets had foretold would come. It would take his resurrection. 
And in some cases, even more, the preaching of Peter and Paul and others to tie all of this together in their minds, to lead them to the acceptance of Christ and repentance of their sins. But in reality, I wonder if what Jesus said here does not even extend to you and I today. And here's what I mean. If I really understood the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, I would not choose to sin. If I really understood how awful hell is and how simply dumb it is to go against the will of an all-loving God, I would not choose to sin. And yet we do. And we do it often, sadly. From wrong attitudes to wrong words to avoiding opportunities to do good towards others to sinful actions, we still choose to sin. And as we often say, our sins are what put Jesus on the cross. Do we really know what we are doing? But still, in the midst of their ignorance and ours, Christ prayed for forgiveness by what he did there. Despite what we may think at the moment, at its most basic level, sin is really irrational. We can justify any sin we want. I'm not saying we can't. We can justify anything. But it really does not make a lot of sense. Since sin is a rebellion against a perfect Holy, all-wise, all-loving, all-knowing God, how could it possibly be rational for us to go against what He requires of us? We so often say that God knows what is ultimately and eternally best for us, even if following those things is not easy in the moment. So knowing that, how could it possibly be rational to turn away from that and just to do whatever I, I want to do in the moment? And so sin is irrational. It is ignorance. We think we know what we are doing because we're feeding the desires of the flesh. But we do not really think it through to what is ultimately eternal best. If you don't believe me, think back to the very first sin we have recorded by the first people in all the Bible. Adam and Eve had that amazing privilege of speaking with God, of hearing directly from him. The Lord himself told them what was acceptable and unacceptable. He gave them commands to follow in obedience, such as tending the garden. He gave them that one restrictive command to not eat that one particular tree. But a serpent comes up and directly opposes what God had said. Playing on the earthly desires. Now, now think about this for a second. Is there anything that seems just a little irrational about that to you? Their very creator, the one they talked to, the one they heard directly from, the one who had given them direction for their life, the one they enjoyed fellowship with, the one they had, that had created a paradise, a literal paradise for them to live in. And yet when a snake tells them to do something different, that's what they do. Folks, if it wasn't tragic, it would be hilarious. Because it is so irrational. And yet every time I choose to sin, I'm being just as irrational. Because I understand what God has done. And I'm choosing to go against that. And in spite of all of that, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. For they don't know not what they do. Here was Emmanuel God with us, going through humanity's worst, and He was willing to call for their forgiveness. Our Lord is always ready to forgive. And aren't you thankful you see that in these words? Number three, 
I would suggest to you that we see in these words that Jesus lived what he taught. Near the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus preached the greatest sermon ever recorded. The Sermon on the Mount, we studied one verse from this morning. The Sermon on the Mount is the standard that every preacher sees as the perfect example. It's the unattainable goal of preaching. But in it, the Lord laid down principles for all time that need to be followed. But he also, if you read it carefully, was laying down guiding principles that would govern the rest of his teachings. You, you take everything else Jesus taught for his time here on the earth, and you can find a precedent for it in the Sermon on the Mount. He was laying down the guardrails, if you please, for what he was going to say. And included in that sermon, which some have suggested is the most difficult words of Christ to follow, are these. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and causes or sins rain on the just and on the unjust. Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44. There's almost nothing Jesus could have taught that would have been more difficult than the concept of loving enemies. But that's the that's a guiding principle he laid down at the beginning of his ministry. That he here is living out. As with all other things, Jesus is the greatest example of practicing what he preached. He came to earth and dwelt among men, as John put it, full of grace and truth. Folks, it takes one full of grace to do what Jesus did. To pray that short one sentence prayer on the cross. But notice that command again in Matthew 5. I'm not trying to to lessen it. I'm not trying to get us off the hook of something. But Jesus did not say that I must forgive my enemies. He said I must love them and pray for them. And the Lord certainly did that on the cross. Only love could have led him to pray the words he did. And the prayer was not saying I forgive them. But Father, you forgive them. By his very actions, Jesus was showing I forgive them by putting his but by letting his blood flow there on the cross. But for the sins they were committing, the ultimate forgiveness could only come from the Father in heaven. And so Jesus knew where to to direct that prayer. By the way, as you might have guessed, the word for love in Matthew 5 and verse 44 is a form of the word agape. Other-centered, self-sacrificial love that we looked at this morning, studied in 1 Corinthians 13. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was saying that same word applies Even my enemies. Do we think of our enemies more than we think of ourselves? Am I sacrificial toward them? If anyone ever was, it was the wonderful man from Galilee. As they cried out for his blood, literally, he remembered what he had taught and he prayed the prayer. He lived what he preached. But what amazes me about these final, these first words, excuse me, from Jesus on the cross is this. In that one simple sentence prayer, it does in reality summarize my greatest need. But wait, somebody says, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. I mean, you weren't there when Jesus prayed this prayer. You weren't out there hurling insults at him. You weren't, those verses, you, you weren't there. And that's true. Obviously, none of us physically were there. But the words of the song are also true, that it was my sin that nailed him there. Paul summarized it well. 
And I want you to read, I want you to flip over your Bible from the book of Luke to the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 5. Because in Romans chapter 5, Paul gives us the summary of how we were there. And how we needed that prayer from Jesus on the cross. Romans 5, beginning in verse 6. Read all the way through verse 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows, literally demonstrates, his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now we sometimes stop reading there, but keep going. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For while, if while we were, mark it in your Bible sometime, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did you see it? In verse 10, I am called an enemy. And so is everyone else. And Christ loved me enough to pray for my forgiveness. In the midst of suffering I can't describe and I frankly don't ever want to think about with the weight of all the sins of all the world on his shoulders, he looked at an enemy and said, forgive him. And the gospel, the good news is that Acts chapter 2 happened. You see, when the people finally removed that ignorance or they learned better and their mind was filled with the truth, they were willing to listen to what was being said that was made possible by that cross And we're willing to say, what can be our reaction to this? What was God's response through Peter? Repent and be baptized. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That day, 3,000 people or so became an outward affirmative answer to the prayer that Jesus had prayed 47 days earlier. But folks, that prayer continues to be answered with a yes every time someone follows the plan of the one who hung on the cross and was willing to say, Father, forgive them. It's no wonder. We sing words like love so amazing. Love so divine. Because how many of us would have thought anything even neutral towards those who put us on the cross? Peter would say that when he was reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. And we know that because he looked around at people who were literally calling for his blood. And if I may seem somewhat crass... Frankly, we're enjoying what was going on. And in only love that's divine, said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Tonight, I want all of us to understand that when we choose to turn our lives away 
from what Jesus did there, if I may be so blunt as to say it this way, we don't know what we are doing. Because we are moving away from a perfect, holy, all-knowing, all-loving, and thankfully all-forgiving God. But the same prayer that Jesus prayed in His first words from the cross continues to ring true. That God will still forgive if we, like those in Acts chapter 2, will turn, repent, and be baptized. Tonight, there may be someone in this room who has never put Christ on in baptism, has never received that initial forgiveness that only comes through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. How do you appropriate that blood? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness, literally the liberation from your sins. Most of us in this room have done that. But maybe tonight you're not living in such a way that reflects it. And you realize, I don't want to live that way, way anymore. I may not, it may not be easy, but I want to walk the path that Jesus has laid out for me through His blood. And I want to make sure that my life reflects that I'm being faithful. That I'm being as much like Christ as I possibly can be. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, or if you're not a faithful Christian, we invite you to come as we stand and sing to encourage you.